Hey, good afternoon. Welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Marcus Peter filling in for Al Cresta on this Friday afternoon. As I mentioned earlier, in the early 1200s, the great Italian theologian poet Dante Alighieri penned La Divina Commedia, a hundred stanzas, on essentially a sacred poem, on the corruption that he saw in society. And he wrote it with an apologetic framework, a decidedly polemic motif to remove those living in this life from the state of misery and to lead them into a state of felicitas, of happiness. To talk with me about the sheer brilliance of Dante's Divine Comedy, and in particular, the Dante's Inferno, which uh, recently, through the inspiration of my bride, who is listening to this broadcast, I just finished, and I, and I, I found theological profundity, Thomistic theological profundity in it, and it was clear that Aquinas is an inspiration of Dante. I'll be talking with Louis Marcos about Dante's Inferno. Louis is the author most recently most recently of Atheism on Trial, Refuting the Modern Arguments Against God. He is a professor of English and scholar in residence at Houston Christian University, which is formerly Houston Baptist University. He has delivered hundreds of lectures worldwide on topics such as apologetics, C.S. Lewis, and Dante. His many other books include Apologetics for the 21st Century, and I must add, Lewis is one of the most prolific commentators on Dante's Divine Comedy in general. His his work is all over the web if you so much as look up Lewis Marcos and da- Dante Alighieri or Dante's Divine Comedy. Lewis, how are you doing? Hey, thanks. It's great to be back on Crest in the Afternoon, Marcus. Always ready to talk about Dante. Oh, I'm, I, I mean, I'm excited, truly. I, and, and I've taken a look at all of your work, and you, you really do have a... It's not just that you have a scholarly appreciation for it. It's very clear that you have you have a deep, almost profound con, conver, conversion type of appreciation for the work that Dante does. It really is amazing. I mean, it, it's so detailed, so concrete, so real, you would swear that he actually went on this journey physically. Right. He's not really claiming he physically went on the journey, but it's so real and, and tangible, incarnational, if you will, that you are on that journey with him, and it just opens you up in a way that's, that's really quite unique uh, in literature. Right. In fact, if you d- take a look at entries by people such as Edmund Gardner, they posit that what you're witnessing is in, in, in literary form is, in fact, a vision that Dante actually had. So a little more than didactic fiction, this was a spiritual experience that he actually underwent, and therefore he felt the need to pen it down, albeit 20 years after the uh, the event itself. It's an amazing thing. I mean, we, we don't know for sure. I mean, he purposely said it in the year 1300, mm-hmm. because in the year 1300, Dante was on the top of the world. His party, they were known as the White Guelphs, his party had defeated the Black Welfs and had taken control of Florence, and Dante had been given a very high position in the government. It seemed like his star was rising, everything was wonderful. Now, the difference between white and Black Welfs is the white Welfs wanted a strong pope, but they wanted the pope to stick with spiritual matters and leave the temporal matters to the Holy Roman Emperor. Mm-hmm. The Black Welfs wanted a super strong pope politically. And Dante was so highly regarded, he was already a a highly regarded poet, now he was a politician, Mm -hmm. he was given a commission to go to Rome to ask the Pope to please not become a warrior and stay out of the political affairs. 
but he, he never actually was able to deliver that. And while he was outside of Florence in the next year of 1301, the Black Guelphs came back, they regrouped, they defeated the White Guelphs, and they basically condemned uh, Dante in absentia, right. telling him if he returned, he'd be put on trial and probably burnt at the stake. Right, and he died so, in exile. It's amazing, and he did. He spent the last next 20, died in 1321. So he spent the last 20 years of his life in, in a somewhat bitter exile. Thank God back then you had patrons like Con Grande de la Scala and all these wonderful people that took him in. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. still, uh, what was he? He has this powerful thing, and he says, you know, how bitter it is to taste, you know, the salt of another land and to go up and down the stairs of another person. I mean, the, the bitterness of, of exile, of not being there. But the implication is, is that the reason the comedy, the journey, takes place in 1300 is partly because God is preparing Dante for what is going to happen to him and allowing him to see that his true and ultimate citizenship is in heaven. And as he gets farther and farther up Paradiso, Mm -hmm. at one point he turns back and the earth has become so insignificant he he can't even see Florence anymore. And he realizes again his true citizenship is is in the kingdom of God. Right, in in patriam, in in, in his true fatherland, which is in in paradiso, in heaven. Uh, And and he he asks, oh gosh, St. Bernard, for uh, a foretaste of the beatific vision, but I I, I don't quite want to jump into the paradiso just yet. Well, uh, we want to go back to the inferno. <laughs> well, I mean, l- l- let's let's do the steps, shall we? Let's go through the pain that Dante went through. So uh, he starts with in in the midday of my life, uh, and and, cl- and clearly it, it it was an allegory to the fact that it probably happened in uh, somewhere in the middle of his life, properly speaking, and and he descends into hell. And I want to start by saying this. For today's modern sensibilities, reading the Inferno, trying to understand the contrapassos in relation to the particular sins that are demonstrated, one can be filled with some level of indignation. What one can. I mean, it, it, you know, if, if we're not paying attention, we can reduce it to a very simplistic punishment to fit the crime, and it can become like one of those horrible slasher movies where they find all sorts of poetic justice ways to kill people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, First of all, I mean, eye for an eye is God's justice, right? Turn the other cheek is God's mercy, but right. eye for an eye is God's justice. Mm-hmm. It, it, you know, it is a real thing. Mm-hmm. But there's a much deeper spiritual and psychological thing going on here. It's not just a simple punishment to fit the crime. Right. It is the crime, the sin, almost literally creates its own punishment. Right. So by looking at the nature of the punishment, we understand the nature of of the sin. Right. So again, there, there's something much deeper going. And early on, we, we discover, to our amazement, that the souls of the damned are actually eager to cross over into the inferno, because the inferno promises them for eternity what they really want, and that is yep. themselves yep. and their sin. Exactly. And, that, and so that, the sin creates the punishment. And that's why, I just want to interject really quickly, that's why it's called the contrapasso for that reason. Having been given in, uh, having given in all their life to that particular paso, that that passion, they have begotten for themselves this particular act of justice. In other words, this is very literally a hell of their own making. Exactly, and Marcus, it's important to realize because a lot of people, when they read Dante or, or any discussion of hell, they say, "Wait a minute, I thought we were taught as believers to love the sinner but hate the sin." 
Well, the sad spiritual and psychological truth is that in hell, the sinner has so much become his sin yep. that there's almost no sinner left. Right. There's just the sin going on forever. And that's why Dante has to actually harden his heart against the sinners in the inferno yep. to turn away from that and to focus fully on God's grace. And I, I think one of the, the biggest problems in that simplistic axiom, or while, while it's accurate, one of the biggest problems in that simplistic axiom is we often tend to forget that our actions truly do imprint on a metaphysical level some kind of lasting mark upon the soul. And without repentance and a, a return back to God, th- th- this mark either stays or grows and compounds and begets further corruption. In a very real sense, th- like you said, th- the deeper one gets entrenched in the sin, the more one loathes oneself, but one loathes God who made oneself even more, and therefore one wants nothing but the sin, which is really what we see in the souls in the inferno. I think, I think the easiest way to understand this, with a little help from C.S. Lewis, is that instead of thinking of heaven and hell as destinations, Mm -hmm. let us think for a moment of heaven and hell as processes. Heaven and hell are not just destinations. Mm -hmm. They're things we become. With each twist that we put on the soul, Mm -hmm. we are becoming more and more a creature meant for hell. With every untwisting as we move towards God, His mercy, His grace, His law, the untwisting is making us more and more into a creature who will actually want to be in heaven. The people right. in the inferno don't want to be in heaven. That's right. They're not exactly having fun down there, but they don't really want to be in heaven because the light would, would just crush them. Uh, and so if I may play a little chosen. bit of, if I may play a little bit of C.S. Lewis jousting here in the uh, problem of pain, he talks about how the souls in hell are perfect rebels. They've gotten what they want, yes. and that's that's why the door to hell is bolted on the inside. That's right, that's right. They're, they're successful rebels to the end. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's, it's, again, we need to understand what sin does to us. Mm-hmm. In a quite literal way, it dehumanizes us. Right. Now, we're, we're not completely gone. This is not annihilationism. But we are, to quote Lewis again, the people in hell are the remains mm-hmm. of a human being, like the ashes what remains, the sin going on and on forever, like a, like a broken record, on and on and on. And we all understand how this happens, Marcus, right? Yep. I'm sure everybody that's listening to this, I'm sure that there's somebody in your family, it could be you, there's somebody in your family who's been bearing a grudge against someone else in the family for the last 10 or 20 years. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, as soon as you choose to give yourself over to the grudge, to the resentment, to the bitterness. What happens, whether we realize it or not, is we suddenly split into two people. There's Mm. us going on and on, holding on to that grudge and anger. Then there's the real us, made in God's image, that's saying to the grudge person, stop, give it up, let it go. Right. And you know what? If we let it go, God can restore us. But if we keep nursing that grudge and feeding it and holding it on, you know what happens? That other guy disappears. That's right. And you become the grudge going on forever. That's what we're seeing in Dante's Inferno. The grudge 
going on forever. In Aquinas's moral theology, he talks about exactly that, that a deeper entrenchment into sin eventually quietens the senderesis of conscience. Eventually, that voice is deadened, willfully so, by, by the act of holding on to this sin that ultimately corrupts and destroys. It's so scary that one of the scariest verses in the Bible is when it talks about how we can sear our conscience, right? Mm. Because sooner or later, the Holy Spirit will stop. I mean, we, we actually have the power to shut down the Spirit right. if we refuse to listen. In the beginning, we won't listen. In the end, we can't listen anymore right. because we've blinded ourselves. We've made ourselves deaf and dumb, and God's Spirit bangs on the door, and we're not listening anymore. This is the deeper spiritual understanding of what's going on with these sinners. In a certain way, to, to use an overused word today, all the sinners are ultimately narcissistic. Yep. So Lewis, I'm going to pause you right there because the music just hit and we're going to continue this conversation on the other side of the break if you've been enjoying this. Stay tuned because I truly am. We're talking to Lewis Mar- Marcos on Dante's Inferno. I'm Marcus Peter filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the Afternoon. Hey, good afternoon, and welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Marcus Peter, filling in for Al Cresta, and we're talking to Louis Marcos, prolific author, professor of English and scholar-in-residence at Houston Christian University. We're talking about his many commentaries on Dante's Inferno, and we're going we're gonna to try to zoom into some, some of the literary and, and theological devices that Dante uses to convey certain very so, certain sobering realities. So Marcus, I, I, I really <laughs> I really didn't want to interrupt you earlier because you, you were clearly on a good train of thought. So uh, if we can pick up where we left off, you, you were talking about how the souls in hell in Dante's Inferno, they, they, they clamor toward hell in, in a real sense. They, they do, you know, just like in Greek mythology, you have to cross the river Styx, or yep, actually yep. the river Acheron, to get into the underworld, and it's that evil Karen, the ferryman of hell, who takes you across. Mm-hmm. And it says that they're eager to go across, and then, and then Dante says, divine justice transforms them so they, uh, they yearn, they actually yearn after what they fear. Mm-hmm. They desire what's going to hurt them and yearn after what they fear. And that sounds like it's psychologically, their dread turns wish, they yearn for what they fear. That's the line. And that sounds impossible, but it really isn't. Think about, um, think, think about a girl that gets in a series of just terrible relationships, one after the other after the other. And it's like she says she wants to get out of it, but she almost gets caught and is unable to escape. Right. Or think of a man that's caught in some kind of drug addiction. It's killing them, right. but they seek after the very, I mean, again, you know, I teach at a Baptist school, Christian school, a Protestant school now, I guess, and I often teach my students that one of the best understandings in Catholicism is sin is misdirected desire. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a very helpful thing, not only to understand ourselves and, and our sinful nature, but to understand Dante. So Dante, in the beginning, is going on the right track, but he falls off the track yep. and get stuck in, uh, I guess you can call it a repetition compulsion. Mm-hmm. You're doing the same thing mm-hmm. that's hurting you again and again. Because look, we have to understand, Marcus, that the devil has never been able to invent a single pleasure. Right. All right. true pleasure, all true desire comes from God. 
Yep. The only thing the devil can do is take God's good desires and mm-hmm. pleasures and twist them yep. or pervert them. As Augustine said, sin is privation. Oh, it's a good, perversion yep. or a twisting or a negation of God's good gifts. So leading and that's into what we see in the inferno. So leading into exactly what you said, which is sin being disordered desire, the, these desires, these appetites are ordered towards these things that are either morally neutral, but either way objectively good in and of themselves. And that which is good can either see some kind of corruption or perversion, and our participation in that corruption or perversion is what begets this interior cycle of sin. That's it, and, and it really is a cycle, right? A, a vicious cycle turned in on itself. You know, it's amazing, Marcus, that this understanding of disordered desire, that Aristotle, the pagan, yep. got a lot of it right. He yep. obviously did not understand original sin or grace, mm-hmm. but he understood the basic understanding of ethics, and that's why Aristotle had a profound influence on Thomas Aquinas, who had a profound influence on C.S. Lewis, and I'm, I'm sorry, on Dante, on Dante, but also C.S. Lewis as mm-hmm. well. Um, if you read uh, Mere Christianity, book three, by C.S. Lewis, mm-hmm. much of what he says about behavior, ethics and yeah. virtue is Aristotelian. It's yep. Thomistic, too, exactly. but it's Aristotelian. Uh, you know, he got it right. <laughs> you know, it's so <laughs> funny. Uh, one, of, one of my favorite quotes comes from uh, C.S. Lewis's, uh, that book, so book three on Christian behavior, uh, it's uh, chapter two of book three. It's uh, on the cardinal virtues. And he essentially says this, that the, the call to be a Christian is going to take the entirety of your intellect. The axiom of Christianity is not be good, sweet maid, and to he who can be clever, but be good, sweet maid, and be as clever as you can. And the reason why I bring that up is because as you're talking about Charon and the the souls gravitating towards his his terrifying fairy, you're talking about Canto 3 in, in the Inferno. This right. is that great gathering, the crossing. And and Canto 3.16 is one of my favorite quotes from, from Dante's Inferno. And it says this, this is, you, are, you are at the place of the miserable, miserable people who have forgone the good of their intellect. Right. Yeah, so, uh, you know, you know just I, tell us a little I, more about that, that, that sin dulls another us. Another thing that's said there, Marcus, that, that really helps is they've also, it says the same passage, this is what happens to people who have lost the fear of God. Mm-hmm. And remember, according to the scriptures, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Yep. When we lose the proper reverential fear of the Lord, that which keeps us on track, that's when we fall off the way. And when we lose the fear of God, you know what happens? Our base instincts take over. That's right. And we go off, off just, just like an animal or something. Right. right. I mean, we have instincts like animals, but because God has also given us reason, we can overcome instinct. But when we lose the fear of God, we sink down and we become controlled by the very instincts that destroy us. Right. And that's why Dante's journey into hell truly follows a kind of moral hierarchy of the gravitas of, of these sins. He starts off with limbo when he places the virtuous pagans there, and unfortunately that's where he finds Virgil. And, and Vir- right. Virgil is someone he looks up to. Virgil is someone right. who has a great influence on him. I mean, to some lesser degree, Lucan, the, the Roman poet, but Virgil is probably his, his prime artistic influence. It, it, it really... It, See, it really is amazing. And, you know, when we talk about the, the, these sins, another thing that I tell my Protestant students is, I don't know if you listen to a lot of evangelicals, but if you're evangelical, you grow up saying this mantra, all sin is sin, mm-hmm. right? 
I think that may be like a long memory of turning against mortal and venial sins or right, whatever. Right, right. But I said, now in one sense, of course, that's true. I mean, even one sin is going to cut us off from a holy God. Mm-hmm. But it's actually not true. There are sins that are worse. Yep. But the reason that the sins of the soul are worse than the sins of the flesh is that the sins of the soul cut us off more from God, turn us more inward towards the self, towards a sort of narcissism, and it's harder for God to reach us, right? It, it's not right. that, I mean, again, all sin is sin, but no, I mean, clearly the sins of the flesh are less bad than the sins of the soul. That's why the prostitutes and, and, and tax collectors were following Jesus when the Pharisees were rejecting him. I mean, this mm-hmm. is actually biblical, right? Um, and, uh, you know, Dante shows that because upper hell are what are, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, upper hell, which yeah, is yeah. better, right? It's closer to the surface. Upper hell are, are known as the sins of incontinence. Mm-hmm. Those are the sins of excess, lust, gluttony, hoarding and wasting, wrath and sullenness. These are sins of, they're an excess of something that is otherwise good, yep. right? Sexuality is a good gift of God, right. but taken to excess in a disordered way, it becomes lust. lust. It's yep. good to eat, but the excess is gluttony. It's good to save our money, it's good to spend our money, but the taken excess. to excess, we become a hoarder or, 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 or a spendthrift, right? Yeah. So th- 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 this is, but, but as we get deeper into hell, what, what, what Dante calls the city of dis, it's kind of its own city down yep. there, um, now we're getting to the sins of the soul, yep. to the violence, to the fraud, to the deceit, all of those things by which we're taking God's gift of reason and perverting it and mm-hmm. twisting it so and, that we not only hurt ourselves, but we hurt other people as well. Yep, so there's a willful direction to evil. Thing. There's a willful direction toward evil in the self and evil against others. Because from the sixth circle onwards with the city of Dis onwards, you've got the heretics. They weren't just heretics to themselves. They were deliberately spouting this evil with, with the malicious intention of converting others. It's, I mean, I'll just use an example because it, it's, it's such a big issue uh, for all Christians right now, and that would be homosexuality. Right. And a lot of people say that in one sense, homosexuality is less of a sin because it's a sin of the flesh. Now, there's some senses in which that's true. It, it's, it's a sin of carnality. Mm-hmm. But what really, really upsets me, Mark, is the horror of what's happened over the last 20 years is that the sin of the flesh, that is fornication, homosexual fornication, is become a sin of the soul. Mm-hmm. Because now we're telling people to take pride and raise your fist against God and say, screw you, this is who I am. Right. You see how different that is? Right. There's one right. thing when somebody, I mean, a good example, two people that I think were believers, Oscar Wilde and uh, what's, what's the great, uh, 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 Auden, W.H. Auden, mm-hmm. uh, were, as far as I could tell, both believers, and they struggled with homosexuality, but mm-hmm. they didn't identify themselves as that. Right. It's something they struggled with, and, you know, sometimes allowed God's grace to help them. Joseph Pierce has written a very good biography of Chester, of uh, Oscar Wilde, mm-hmm. reminding us of that. So, so again, here's a case where we have to be careful what we do. Like, like here's just another example, okay? There are some people that read the account of the conquest of Canaan, right? Mm-hmm. And it makes them wonder if we can really trust the Bible. Well, that's a bad sin, okay? But there's a worse sin, and that is raising a generation of kids 
who think that they're more moral and virtuous than the God of the Old Testament. Yep. Do you see how that's a sin of the soul? That's yep. also almost the worst sin of all. It's pride, yep. it's blasphemy. Um, so we, we, we need to be careful of what's happening, and that, that's the politicization of things, yep. is taking sins that would be more minor and making them very major. <laughs> you know, that's truly heartbreaking that you bring that up, because th- that was something that, that was on my mind as I read The Inferno. So The Inferno was taught in a place that I, I used to teach at some time ago, and uh, w- whenever th- the seventh circle, the plane of fire, was brought up, especially, you know, the the third ring where the sodomites were. Uh, oh, right, some, yeah. Yeah, it, it was awful, because when a test was given, multiple students w- w- would just simply refuse to do the test out of uh, public mm. defiance. And mind you, this is a Catholic school. And, 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 and willful defiance, because how dare you say that homosexuals will be punished by being this low in hell? But the fact of the matter is, as Carl Truman talks about in The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, the, the ideology went from the privacy of the bedroom into the cry against everything that natural law calls for. God has right. ordained one man, one woman, permanent, lifelong, and indissoluble in heterosexual sex. Well, Criticize that, ridicule that, call that archaic, call that condemnatory, and if anything, validate this new, fluid, transient version of the self and sexual fluidity. It, it, I mean, what Dante does is fascinating. Okay, so uh, level seven is violence, but it's split into sub-levels. Mm-hmm. So first, there's the violence against others, right. and that's like being a murderer. Then there's the violence against self, which, of course, is suicide. But then the place we're talking about now is a, 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 it's, it's a plain of burning sand. And there are punished three people that are all combined, the blasphemers, mm-hmm. the sodomites, mm-hmm. and the usurers. Mm-hmm. Now, what do they have in common? Okay, blasphemy is a violence against God. This is what Dante explains. Blasphemy is violence against God. But sodomy is a violence against, so to speak, the son of God, the offspring of God, which is nature. Mm. So sodomy is a violence against nature. And just as blasphemy is ultimately barren, so is sodomy, obviously, barren. But then, if the offspring of God is nature, the grandchild of God is art, or a skill, what the Greeks called the techne. Mm -hmm, Usually... Usury used to be one of the worst sins in the Middle Ages. It's now the foundation of our entire economic, economic system. system. Yes, I mean that way. If there's anything that would have shocked the medieval people, it would have been right there. <laughs> Usury means well, it's got two meanings. One is selling, lending money at interest. Sometimes we define it lending money at excessive rates of interest. Mm-hmm. But for Dante and 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 and, and uh, well, well, for Aquinas, but all the way going back to Aristotle, the problem with usury is that it is barren. It does not create anything. It tries to beget money from money, which Dante sees as a sort of um, a sort of perversion or infertile kind of almost like sodomy or blasphemy itself. Mm-hmm. And so again, it, it, it's a it's a turning away from God's fertility and productivity, right? And a turning and an embrace of barrenness. And that's why again, all three of them. Are, are punished on the burning sands. In fact, it is actually raining sand. Like, imagine snowflakes that are actually bits of fire coming down. And the blasphemers are the worst, so they are prone on their face, mm-hmm. right? The, the sodomites are a little less bad, so they are walking endlessly on the burning sand. Right. And then the usurers are crouching mm-hmm. like little baboons, and they're weeping into their money belts. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, again, very specific details there. 
<laughs> and and you know Dante truly is excellent uh, in in doing that. And gosh, we could go on forever, Lewis. I I, I truly wish we could, but we uh, we do have to call it. It's a music kicking. I've been talking to Lewis Marcos, who is a professor of English and scholar in residence at Houston Christian University, and we've been talking about the perennial merits of reading and meditating upon Dante Alighieri's Divine Comedy, and in particular the Inferno. I'm Marcus Peter filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the afternoon. <laughs>